Welcome everyone. My name is Dan Sullivan. I am one of the programmers uh, at Filament Lincoln Center. Just want to welcome you all to uh, this free talk sponsored by HBO, which is a part of our uh, a retrospective that we're presenting in our virtual cinema, which kicked off uh, yesterday, uh, Telling Pictures, uh, the documentaries of Rob Epstein and Jeffrey Friedman. It's a six film uh, survey of some of their uh, nonfiction work, and it's gonna be in our virtual cinema through uh, November 5th. We, we hope you'll uh, take the opportunity to, uh, to go back and acquaint or reacquaint yourself with these incredibly important films. I want to uh, thank uh, the distributor of four of the films, uh, Milestone Films, without whose you know, invaluable advocacy and, and work and support and so on. Uh, this retrospective certainly wouldn't have been possible um, connecting us with, uh, with Rob and Jeffrey and so on. Um, so uh, yeah, big shout out to Amy and Dennis. And yeah. Oh, I did want to mention that we also have a, a special bundle a, a four film bundle so you can get a discount uh, to see uh, four of the films so uh, do check that out it's great value we're, we're showing two films in this uh, series which actually uh, precede your uh, your partnership with Jeffrey those being uh, the times of Harvey Milk and uh, and the aid show I thought maybe it made sense to just kind of begin uh, by talking about um, the early part of your of, of your career just kind of um, what brought you I think to filmmaking, but more specifically uh, documentary. And um, I guess would, yeah, uh, like word is out. It seems like an especially important early work. So how did you come to documentary? Yeah, I came to documentary by answering a classified ad uh, back in the days when there was such a thing as classified ads in the back of a magazine. Uh, this was in San Francisco in 1976. I had just uh, landed in San Francisco from the East Coast and was looking to do something um, in the arts. I mean, I was, when I was a kid, I, was, I painted and then I stopped doing art when I reached puberty. And then uh, I decided I wanted to find my way back to it somehow um, and started taking some photography classes and came upon this ad which said uh, they were looking for a production assistant to work on a film about gay lifestyles. Um, and I answered the ad and uh, was invited to join the early days of the project, which then ultimately became the film Word is Out. So uh, Peter Adair was the mastermind behind that project. And ultimately there were six of us that collectively worked on it for several years. Uh, Veronica Silver, Lucy Massey-Phoenix, Andrew Brown, Nancy Adair and Peter Adair. And, uh, and that was my film school. That was really uh, Veronica and Peter and, and Lucy were my early teachers. And on that film, I got to do everything. So it was, it was a fully immersive uh, filmmaking experience. Um, and Peter became my mentor and close friend. And then eventually we went on to do another film together, The Age Show, which is part of this retrospective. Yeah, this is all sort of falling at like a really um, kind of iconic, vibrant period in like American um, independent cinema, but specifically like, you know, uh, documentary. And I'm, I'm, I'm sort of one, I was curious at the time, you know, what were what sorts of uh, nonfiction films I think were you were you looking at, uh, at like in these early days and, and you know, what, what kind of left an impression on you? You know, I had a high school teacher in Melbourne, New Jersey uh, in AP European history. And she, yeah, he took us, his name was Dana Stivers. And he took us into New York to see the sorrow and the pity. Um, and that film was a real inspiration for Peter in making Word is Out. And one of the films that we all looked at together and studied uh, as we were formulating that project, uh, as well as Shirley Clark's Portrait of Jason, another important film and a, a milestone, uh, a film that Dennis and Amy uh, reissued, uh, Shirley Clark's masterpiece, Portrait of Jason. Um, so those were two important films in the making of Word is Out 
for me, in the making of the times of Harvey Milk, uh, uh, while we were, I guess it was while we were making Words Out, I saw Barbara Coppola's film Harlan County at the Castro Theater. And that film uh, just opened my eyes into the possibilities of what a documentary could do because it reached me so viscerally. You know, here I was this young gay kid watching a film about Appalachian coal miners in the, in the Castro Theater in San Francisco and having my whole worldview expanded. And that Barbara's film really was an inspiration for me in thinking about how the Harvey Milk story could reach an audience that might not otherwise be um, seeking it out. Let's um, let's bring Jeffrey into the uh, into the discussion, uh, both literally and as a as a subject. So um, maybe could we just go? Could we go back to the the, the sort of I guess like uh, the birth of your uh, creative partnership? I mean, um, how did you two meet, and and kind of. Uh, what, what do you think compelled you two to, to start making films together? Uh, I was working in New York as an assistant film editor uh, in on features and documentaries. And um, the film industry at that time was very straight, uh, pretty homophobic. Uh, and the films that I worked on by and large felt disconnected from my experience. I love the movies. I just wasn't feeling connected to the, to the content of the films. And a friend of mine dragged me to a theater on the east side of Manhattan to see a documentary he said was really important. I had to see it. This was 77, I guess, 76, maybe. Um, and that film was- 77, it came out. Yeah, so it was 77. And that was Word Is Out, and I was blown away. It was, it was a really, really well-made film, and it was the first film we'd ever seen that was made by queer people about queer people. And, um, you know, it spoke to me, and I said, I want to work with those people. I knew they were in California, and I was planning to move to San Francisco or Northern California, um, within a year or two. So I got, I asked around and I got the name of one of the filmmakers, Veronica Selver. And when I got to San Francisco, I called her up and we had a drink. And she, she said, um, you should come to a party I'm throwing for, for one of the other filmmakers this weekend. And that was Rob. And that was where we met. We became friends first. Uh, Rob was working on the Times of Harvey Milk then, and I was uh, I was working as assistant editor on a, a feature, Never Cry Wolf, Carol Ballard feature, um, and I offered my services. I helped design the photo animation and consulted on the editing, um, but you know I was a I was kind of a volunteer um, consultant. And then we worked together on a film that Rob was producing, a TV documentary uh, that I, uh, I came on and edited. And we, we clicked and decided to, I think Rob proposed that we make a film together. And, and Rob, when, um, when, you started, when you began working with Jeffrey, I'm curious, um, since you'd already, uh, you know, you'd already made um, uh, some work at, up to that point. Um, I'm wondering how, yeah, how introducing uh, Jeffrey and uh, his editing and so on, like how that kind, of, what kind of transformation you 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 thought that made for your own kind of way of working. Well, Jeffrey, I think the first real kind of hands-on rolling up our sleeves, working together, aside from the animation work he was doing on on the times of Harvey Milk. And then, you know, we're working with photo animation stands. So it was a very different process from what it is now, much more laborious. Um, but there was a, you know, it was having trouble making a, a sequence work. It was the, it was the Harvey Milk's victory at the end of act one in the times of Harvey Milk. And Debbie and I 
we were each working on different reels and I think I was working on that section. I'm not sure, but anyway, we were having trouble. We had so little material to work with of actual archival elements that would um, really bring to life that moment of victory when Harvey is finally elected for the first time for the Board of Supervisors after multiple attempts. And it was an important dramatic moment, but we didn't really have the footage, we had scraps. Um, and it wasn't working, but somehow Jeffrey was able to help us shape that particular moment. So it played like a moment. So I think that was the first time that I remember where we were kind of creatively really hashing something out and ended up somewhere new that we were both really excited about. And then the same thing happened when uh, we worked together on this series, We the People. Um, my episode, um, you know, I was really struggling with the, you know, getting the story structure working and, and Jeffrey and working together, we again arrived at something that we were both excited about and excited about the process. So that kind of set the template. Yeah. Um, I want to, I want to turn to, um, to common threads, um, uh, in just a second, but I also wanted to mention, uh, to everyone who's watching, um, if you have any questions for, uh, Robin Jeffrey, um, uh, you can input them at the bottom of this, the bottom of Zoom, the Zoom interface, uh, in the Q&A, um, uh, field, and we will answer as many questions as we can, uh, before this, uh, session is through. So, yeah. Anyway, um, now I, I want to look ahead to uh, to common to common threads, uh, stories from the quilt, and um, I guess you know, I mean, I, yeah, I, I guess like uh, you know, uh, from a sort of like historical perspective, I know you know, I, I think we know how the film kind of like how it came about, but I'm wondering sort of um, uh, I don't know for you like for you to just kind of um, uh, what inspired you to, to make a film about, about the, uh, about the project. And I guess I'm, I'm especially, um, I'm especially interested in kind of, uh, you know, the experience of spending time with all the, the, the subjects, the interviewees and, and so on. Um, it was a long time ago, but I'm wondering sort of what, how those memories kind of uh, sit with you now. Well, I was just going to say something about the AIDS show, since that's part of your retrospective, which which was before Common Threads, to kind of help set the scene for what was going on, what was going on with the epidemic and where we were with the epidemic at that point, and then subsequently where we were at with Common Threads. So the AIDS show Peter and I did in uh, 86, and that was you know very early in the epidemic. We were at the tip of the iceberg, but we had no idea where we were in relationship to the, you know, the totality of what the full-blown AIDS crisis would eventually become. But we did know that friends and loved ones were getting sick and dying and dying quickly and dying horrible deaths. And uh, that was something that we, in San Francisco, among our friends who are experiencing and know what's happening elsewhere. But, um, you know, it wasn't really known experientially what, what we were going through. And Peter and I saw this play and felt that that was an attempt to do a kind of cultural representation of, of the moment. Um, and that's, you know, that's what, what the Age Show Project was about. Um, but, you know, the H show was really specific to San Francisco. It was very kind of specific to a moment. It had a very kind of um, immediacy to it. Um, Common Threads was a very different kind of project when, when we saw the quilt and saw, you know, just, just witnessed what the, you know, the metaphoric power of the quilt that, opened up a whole other possible way in which we might take on the subject. Yeah. Um, I I'll let you take it from there. I just wanted to kind of. Yeah, actually, if you don't mind, I just wanted to ask one quick follow-up. Back and follow set up, up the intro. Yeah. 
I wanted to ask one quick follow-up thing about the yeah. about the age show, which um, which is just that you know at the time, um, perhaps even before you and Peter uh, decide, uh, decided to make the film, did you see the like the theater uh, rhinoceros performances in some way, kind of like analogous to some of the things that you wanted to do, like in cinema, like um, the kind of like intervention or like confrontation with reality that's like bound up in that performance? Well, you know, the, the show itself is a, it's a series of vignettes and each of the vignettes represent uh, a story and a point of view, a, a point of view of a mother, a point of view of a nurse, point of view of a hospice worker, a point of view of a group of friends. So, I mean, I guess in that sense, that's what we tried to do in our, in our documentary casting they were doing in these theatrical in these theatrical vignettes. Uh, but I think the, I think the power of what we're trying to capture in the kind of representation of the Ed Show was the role of community in, in this crisis, you know, that we were, we were depending on our own emotional psychological resources to take care of uh take take care of one another and take care of our community and that felt like it was encapsulated in the the theater experience you know the the kind of cathartic experience of going to see this show and what this the makers of the theater experience were doing and conveying in their own message messaging for me the thing the power of that show was just that it was expressing things that we were feeling but we were we were so terrified it's it's really hard to hard to describe how what a scary time it was because we had no idea what was what the disease was we, we didn't know who had it we didn't know you know when it was going to come for us um, we were i mean you know it was, i mean there there are feelings that are coming up around covid that are, that resonate very much with with those feelings um, and it, we were almost afraid. We didn't know how to talk about it. So I think the, you know, that that the theater production of the H O was was one of the first um, uh, one of the first attempts to um, articulate something that the community was feeling. I think when we made Common Threads, we it, it was also very early in the epidemic, but we felt. We, we we weren't just speaking to the community. We felt we wanted to. It was important to speak to um, to people who were not affected by AIDS, and that's. I think that's really. Um, I mean, I think the film might have worked for people who were affected, but I think really our focus at the time was letting people know what this experience was. That um, you know, some of us in various communities were going through. So when we were when we were developing common threads, we um, we started at the Names Project, the the organization that um, invented, imagined, manifested the quilt, and we went through all the letters that they had. Letters had been sent in with quilt panels, and at that time there were about two thousand panels in the quilt. And we read through all those letters with um, Cindy Ruskin, we, uh, our uh, writer we were working with, who had written a um, coffee table book about the quilt. And of those 2,000 letters, we, we, called, we called about 200 that we thought were, I don't know, somehow grabbed our imagination. Um, and then we just kept whittling it down um, you know, we were looking to be representative of the epidemic. So we wanted to find representatives of the various communities that were being affected uh, without it feeling too schematic and obvious. Um, but we eventually narrowed it down to about 60, um, 60 stories that we then... Um, we videotaped. Well, did, I think we did a round of phone, phone interviews. interviews yeah. About 200 of them. 
And then of those 200, we, we videotaped 60. Um, this would have been so much easier to do in the internet age, but we actually had to go, the, you know, go visit people with video cameras and uh, videotape them. And then we, you know, from those, from those characters, we, we whittled it down to the, the five that we, we finally followed in the, in the film. The videotape process, it's a pre-interview process. It's not, uh, you know, it's not a final production. It's really just a, a research process. And that, you know, that was, that goes back to, to Word is Out and the process we, we did with that project. And also Harvey with Common Threads. Sorry. Harvey Milk too. Harvey did, Milk. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, also with Common Threads, we knew at a certain point, HBO was behind the project. So we knew that it was going to be reaching a whole other level of audience that um, we, you know, we didn't anticipate. And, and now we had the opportunity to, to really make a statement around AIDS at a time where, you know, there, I don't know if there was another documentary yet about AIDS that, that had gotten that kind of mainstream broadcast or mainstream audience. So uh, that was really important. Well, there are, um, yeah, I think there are, there are I, we could probably spend like an hour talking about most films in the, or all probably each of the films in the, in the series. But um, um, I, I guess I, with, with regrets, I want to move on to where are we um, uh, so we can get to the audience questions and so on. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a very, uh, I think where are we are trip through America is Mark's kind of a, uh, striking, um, uh, turn, uh, for you guys following, um, following, uh, common threads. Um, you know, it's kind of a, it's more, it's, it's maybe more diaristic, uh, something of like a road movie. Um, uh, um, there's kind of an Americana element, um, uh, uh, but I'm also, you know, in, in revisiting it um, a couple times uh, for work on the, on the series, I was, you know, I was struck by uh, the sort of the, the, the role of the Gulf War, like the, the, the sort of specter, you know, the way that it kind of um, uh, informs so much what seems to be going on culturally, so, uh, socially, maybe. Um, um, and I think, I think after, yeah, especially after like the Iraq, you know, um, the like wars of conquest in the Middle East and so on, people kind of lose, have like a different sense of like the significance of the Gulf War now. So I, I was just thinking how important was kind of the, uh, the political climate at the time in sort of your thinking through of the way that you wanted to approach this, uh, this very kind of like personal exploratory kind of documentary. Well, we knew we were going from our blue bubble. It wasn't called that at the time. Yeah. But we knew we were going out into the red heartland, as they as they call it. Um, so we knew that that would be that would be part of the, the dynamic. And it was certainly part of what we were interested in exploring. Um, you know, what we could, I, I think we were looking for 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 points of um, commonality with people who had very different backgrounds and very different belief systems than we did. I yeah, think, I think the, yeah. I think the Gulf War was something that we discovered uh, while we were underway and certainly in the material when we were editing, it wasn't anything, it wasn't part of the concept when we set out. Uh, but when we, when, when we saw what we had, we realized that it was kind of um, ton a tonality to the, to the piece. Um, but we had two pretty simple um, conceptual underpinnings. One was going into an unfamiliar part of the country to us and, and confronting our own preconceptions that we might have and preconceptions that people might have about us as that one, one guy says in the diner, he enjoys people talking to uh, people from other countries when we identify ourselves as being from California. Yeah. That's and, completely amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's what it felt like for them and for us. And, and the other is how do you make a connection with a, 
you know, a mo how, how do you make any kind of momentary connection with a stranger in a passing interaction? And I think that's what we looked for in each encounter in, you know, with the nature of our questions, which we had some set piece questions. And then it was also, you know, just going with intuition of the moment. I think that was the, you know, the basic concept to it. The rest was serendipity and surprise. It yeah. was also very free. It was a very, you know, Common Threads was a very kind of structured film. I mean, we, we really like planned it out and sort of everything fits in its place. Um, and we wanted to do something looser and more improvisatory. Um, and yeah, so no I'm agenda. Finding things that, yeah, no agenda, and yeah. letting things happen. And uh, Rob, it's funny, uh, Rob, but something you were saying about kind of about finding this um, the the thread of the Gulf War, sort of in the um, in the cutting room, I guess, or or just after the fact, um, and it it almost in a in a way that like um, that almost seems related to something. Uh, something that comes up in the, in the voiceover uh, towards the end of the, the film, this kind of, um, uh, you're, you guys are like speculating or sort of worrying that perhaps on, on this trip, you've only seen what you wanted to see. And um, in a weird way, like finding, finding, the, finding something after the fact is almost, almost like disproves that because you, you, you did see something that you uh, didn't, no one wants to see like war, right? So um, I don't know, I was just like, I was wondering, was that, um, that that came up like late in the film, presumably because it was like something on your mind um, uh, during the making of the film, probably like projection or something along those lines. Well, the voiceover element was something that we added um, late in the structuring of the film and the edit of the film. And we felt like we needed to find a way to include ourselves to both give the give more sense of the point of view of the filmmakers, literally, mm -hmm. um, and to just have us be part of, find a way to have us be more part of the fabric of, of the film. It's also, I have to say, was the element that I always felt most um, self-conscious about, you know, because it's not something we intended to do, not something we wanted to do, but we felt that the film compelled us to do that. And I, you know, for years, I, I couldn't watch the film without cringing because of that. It was really interesting watching it again for this. Um, and I had just a very different experience with it now. And, you know, right now it's, it's feeling like my most favorite project of ours because um, I just saw a whole other kind of resonance in it. And so for so many different reasons, but mostly for for the people that we we met and encountered and and the issues that just come up from their own experience from you know from drug abuse and addiction and the nature of love and you know just these really deep deep human subjects that just bubble right to the surface in these very quick quick and and fleeting encounters so I don't know, I was able to appreciate it in a whole new way and uh, not be uh, taken aback by my own self-consciousness. Um, why don't we, uh, I guess we'll, uh, just being conscious of time, I'll like, uh, yeah, I'll steer us towards um, the celluloid closet. Um, uh, I guess just, I'd be curious, um, you know, it was, uh, before it was a film, of course, it was uh, Vito Russo's book and um, and and uh, lectures, uh, clip shows, uh, sort of, sort of thing. Um, so, could you just talk? Uh, could you guys talk a bit about how how the film kind of uh, uh, grew out of those sort of original um, texts or sources? And um, I guess it's also it also stands out for the very for the you know heavy use of uh of archival material and um which you know um so I'm, i was wondering sort of uh what that what the experience of hand of working with all all those uh all these clips um trying to you know um trying to put them together and create something new like what how that kind of struck you 
Yeah, yeah, that film challenged us for a long time when we were developing it. We really, it really took us a long time to figure out what the form should be. Um, we, you know, we started with Vito's book and with Vito. Um, who, well, can I just quick interjection? I mean, originally we were just going to help Vito document his lecture show. We were really just going to essentially tape Vito doing his live performance. Right. Uh, yeah. Vito, but Vito wanted it to be a, he wanted it to be a TV series. He thought it would be a PBS series. So we started by helping him develop that idea. And then at some point, uh, so I, I, he just made it clear that, that we were gonna make the movie. Um, he, was already, he was already sick at that point and I think knew that um, he might not see it finished, um, but he wanted us to make it and he wanted it to get made. And, and he, he wanted us to figure out a way to make it without him because he was such a charismatic presenter of the information when he did his, when he did his um, lecture clip show presentations. It was really the veto show with clips. Um, and it was, it was very much a community event. I remember going to the Castro Theater with, sitting with 1500 people and, and everybody just being um, uh, gripped by, by Vito's passion. Uh, so we, we had to find a way to somehow translate that. And we, you know, we, we, we went through a bunch of different iterations. Um, we started editing with just the clips. So we collected them from VHS tapes and laser discs at the time because there was no internet. Um, we taped things off television and we were edited and we edited a, a, a four hour assembly of clips from, from 1895 to 1995 or 93, whenever it was. And, and then we couldn't figure out, you know, how to shape that into a narrative. So we, we, we struggled with, with different strategies. We tried, we tried organizing it by stereotypes because Vito had, had identified these different ways that, that queer people were represented in the movies, the sissy, the bull dyke, uh, the psycho killer, um, the sad queen. And that was kind of interesting, but there was, we couldn't figure out how to make a narrative out of that. Um, we thought we tried doing it chronologically and that just had a kind of, you know, this happened and this happened and this happened. And there was really no, there's no way to, to develop any kind of theoretical thread through that. So finally, um, with our colleague, Sharon Wood, who we've worked with on several films, um, we, we came up with a, a structure that sort of married those two, those two ideas. We, we figured out a way to, um, to tell the story chronologically, but using each era to, to talk about the stereotype that was predominant in that era. So once we had gotten that figured out, then we, we realized we needed to start talking to people to give context and and, um, and meaning to the clips. So that's when we started trying to get people to, to sit down and, and be interviewed. And Michael Lumpkin, who had, uh, was one of the creators of the Frameline, the LGBTQ festival in San Francisco, left his position to come work with us and produce the film and helped make all that happen. Yeah. And, um, and how did, uh, how did Lily Tomlin um, come to be involved? Lily, Lily and Vito were good friends. And Vito, I mean, Vito was also a good friend of, of ours and wrote, you know, 
a lot of the book at my apartment in, in San Francisco. Um, so I always heard about Lily through Vito. You know, he always had Lily stories and Vito is one of these people that always would find ways to connect the, the disparate people in his life. Uh, so at one point we just reached out to Lily. We were having trouble, we were having trouble raising money. Um, so we approached Lily and we went down and met with her at her house. And she said, let's go to HBO. Let's take it to HBO. And she was able to get the head of HBO on the phone and we all flew in for a meeting and HBO came on board. And so Lily was, you know, Lily was instrumental to the project all along the way. And when it came, came time for us to decide on a narrator, she seemed like the obvious choice to us. I, I should, um, I should note it's uh, it's it's an actual coincidence that HBO is a sponsor of this uh, this talk. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, um, I guess before we before we uh, we open it up um, to the audience questions, um, uh, I want to talk about uh, paragraph uh, one seventy five. Um, uh, another another kind of shift. Um, uh, for you guys, I think, uh, and this time it's sort of a shift. Uh, you're sort of like looking away from the United States, um, but you're and and also looking at um, kind of a different period. Uh, uh, so, how did I'm I'm curious how how uh, how the film kind of uh, how it came about? But I think, um, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm just and I'm especially curious about um, about sort of developing um, these relationships with, uh, with the subjects, um, considering, I think it, th there are a couple moments where it's like, uh, it seems like, uh, like the people can't bear sort of revisiting some of the, some memories they have and so on, just sort of like what, you know, what the whole experience of sort of living these relationships uh, while making a film, what, what that's like. So Jeffrey, you start and then I'll jump in. <laughs> Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, that was a big shift for us. Um, you know, we were making a film about another culture, uh, not only a different period in history, but, um, you know, we were, it, it, was, it was in another language that we didn't understand. Um, and, you know, for a long time, throughout the, the making of the film, in fact, we were always, um, asking ourselves if we were really the right filmmakers to be to be making this film because it wasn't our culture, it wasn't our story. Um, the 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 people we were interviewing were by and large non-Jewish Germans who had lived through the Nazi era, and they'd been they'd experienced some kind of persecution for being queer, but. Um, you know, but there were Germans and we were Jewish and is this really, should we be doing this? Um, and it was something that was, I, I think, constantly um, uh, worrying us. Uh, our, um, our producer, Michael Ehrenzweig, uh, who uh, grew up in Austria and was our guide through the German part of the film, uh, kept trying to convince us that we were the right people, that, that as outsiders, we would have a perspective that German filmmakers wouldn't have had. And I think we ultimately comforted ourselves that that was true. And with the 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 ambiguity of dealing with these these um, Germans who had lived through the war, we just decided to try to um, try to address that as uh, in, in as um, direct a way as we could, and to 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 include some of that nuance in the film. So there's a there's a great moment where one of one of the one of the men who's been imprisoned for being gay gets released from prison and goes and joins the army. And you can hear Rob 
sort of stuttering, going, what, what, what? <laughs> um, so, you know, in, in, in little ways like that, we tried to acknowledge our ambivalence. The project came to us through Klaus Mueller, the historian in the film, who uh, Jeff and I were in Amsterdam with the cellulite closet and Klaus uh, delivered a letter to our hotel on United States Holocaust Memorial Museum letterhead asking for a meeting and we met with him uh, and were very impressed by what he had to tell us, which is that he said he had been interviewed doing these oral histories with uh, gay male survivors of Nazi persecution and that he had a handful that would be willing to tell their stories on camera. So that's, that's how the project came to us. I, I'm going to um, turn to the, some of our audience questions now. Um, for, for people who ask questions, some of, the, some of these are uh, kind of uh, duplicates or repetitions. So I'm just going to condense uh, some of the questions where I can. I'll start, um, I guess, a very present tense uh, question. There are a few different versions of this. Um, it's, you know, what you both are, uh, are working on now. Um, and, um, just, I guess is a question kind of about how the impact of the pandemic, perhaps your, your own experience just of it, how that, um, how you can see that kind of, uh, affecting your, your, the work you're doing now or will, will make. Well, what we're working on now, always the least favorite question um, because talk is cheap mm -hmm. and projects are ephemeral. Um, <laughs> but we're working on a film about the photographer, Peter Hujar. We're developing a film on the photographer, Peter Hujar. Uh, that's our, our main project right now. And in terms of COVID, I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> have to wait and see. Yeah. Um, this is a more, uh, this is a more concrete uh, question. Um, uh, I guess uh, for Rob, uh, how did, how did Har uh, Harvey Firestein come to be the narrator of uh, times of Harvey Milk? Well, you know, I knew I wanted to have uh, a voice that had character, that the, the narrator wouldn't just feel like an omniscient character, but would feel like it had some um, subliminal kind of investment in the story. So uh, I wanted it to feel like a gay perspective without any of that being literal. And Harvey was in Torch Song Trilogy at the time. So his, his show, Torch, Strong, Torch Song Trilogy, was getting attention and he was getting notor notoriety. And we contacted him and uh, got a message on an answering machine. I'll never forget that back when we had answering machines, Harvey Firestein. And he said he would do it. And at that point, uh, I think the first recording with Harvey was in his like a bedroom in his apartment in Brooklyn. Uh, that was like the, the scratch track for, for the narration. Was he the only gay, uh, out gay actor at the time? Probably was the only out gay actor at the time. Yeah, good point. Um, I have a question, question here about, I guess it's about, uh, about aesthetics. Um, someone wants to, Someone wants to know um, uh, when you guys are when you're working on a documentary. Do you find do you find yourselves um, I guess searching out uh, beauty, beautiful things, visually interesting things, or do you uh, do you just kind of I guess not do that? Uh, do you just kind of let the documentary kind of absorb uh, uh, things. I I think it maybe just maybe it's really just like a question about like. Um, you know, when you're, yeah, sorry. No, I think it's a, it's a, it's an interesting question, a good one, mm -hmm. because I think we do find, try and find some kind of anchoring visual metaphor 
um, that, uh, yeah, with Harvey Milk, it was the candlelight march. With the quilt, obviously, it was the quilt. Um, paragraph 175, it was the train. Um, and I think that came from uh, a very early shoot on paragraph 175. We were supposed to interview, do an interview. We had an interview set up with, with one of the survivors. And at the last minute, he said he wasn't going to do it. He couldn't do it. And that's actually the scene of Klaus in the phone booth in the film where he's trying to convince uh, Carl to let him at least come and, and visit. So we got on the train and filmed on the train and then just that started to resonate. The idea of the train and the symbolism of the train became a, a motif. And we're we're coming up on the uh, the end of our of our hour, um, sadly. So I, I, I wanted to kind of wrap this up, uh, maybe by um, I just wanted to ask you guys sort of about um, about you know the 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 sort of role or notion of like the um, activist artist. I mean, considering how kind of um, I think determinate like these films have been for a lot of people's kind of. Uh, um, the way that they imagine uh, a lot of the subjects. Um, um, I was just wondering kind of um, when you guys, maybe at the outset of your partnership, how you kind of, how you, what you kind of thought of the place of, you know, the artist or documentarian or whatever, um, uh, you know, what, the, what they're kind of like, what the obligation uh, would be to sort of like confront uh, uh, the political uh, situation, maybe sort of how that's changed over time, because obviously so much has happened in this country politically over the past 30 years. So, um, so yeah, have you, have you noticed any kinds of shifts in the way that you guys uh, think about that, that, that duty or obligation or? No, I mean, I, I don't think it's something that we think, I think, I think we have activist impulses with our, with our subject matter, but that's not the driving force or intention. I mean, there's, you know, there's an impulse behind it, but there isn't um, a specific agenda. agenda other than to give the audience, to hopefully create something that, takes the audience somewhere in some visceral experiential way. And I think that's the most politically effective um, presentation is to just try and create a, an emotionally honest and truthful experience for the audience, however you do that. And we've often done that through oral histories, through you know finding wonderful people that, um, you know, it's kind of our job as filmmakers to take them back into their uh, retelling of their own experiences and reliving their own experiences as oral histories and then collectively formulating some kind of bigger picture presentation that hopefully means something. Yeah, I guess I would just say that, you know, I was, I grew up in a political family um, you know, I sort of have this impulse to, to make things better. Um, but, you know, and film is, film is what I do. And, you know, I think every, everything we do is political and you just want to, I, I want to make films about things that I care about and I want to, I want them to um, resonate with people and to um, increase understanding, I think. Just understanding, I want, understanding how the world works and how, who we are in the world. And, um, you know, it's, it, it, it's more, yeah, it's more of a, an instinct than, um, than a conscious, mission i think yeah um i think that is a uh 
it's a really uh, lovely note to maybe uh, conclude the discussion on. Um, I, uh, I thank you both uh, very, very much for, for participating in all this and for uh, letting us show these uh, completely amazing films that if you haven't, if the people at home haven't uh, gotten to watch all of them uh, yet, you should. Uh, uh, you will not regret it. And um, yeah, the, the series will be going on until the 5th. Um, uh, so yeah, you'll have ample opportunity. Uh, but, uh, but once again, um, Rob, Can we Jeffrey. just say a couple of final thank yous? Yeah, yeah, by all well, means. Well, first of all, to you, Dan, thank you for this conversation. Um, and to film at Lincoln Center for doing this retrospective, you know, uh, having had films at the New York Film Festival showing at Lincoln Center, uh, career highlights, highlight, life highlights, having had that experience twice. Um, so thank you and to the Film Society and to Dennis and Amy, uh, Dennis Doros and Amy Heller and their company Milestone for you know, the work that they do uh, uh, resurrecting films and restoring films and reissuing films like Shirley Clark's Portrait of Jason and Charles Burnett's Killer of Sheep and now a few of our titles. So we're very grateful for that. Thanks again, guys. Uh, thank you, Amy and Dennis. Yeah, take care. Okay. Yeah, thank you. Bye.